Hi, and welcome to Conversations on the Rocks, the podcast where my guest determines the topic. I am your host, Kristen Dokus, and this week I am talking to a commercial airline pilot, and we go through the most frequently asked questions that he gets when people find out that he is a pilot. So grab your favorite cocktail or a cup of joe, and let's get started. Okay. Hi, Peyton. Thanks for joining us today. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about your life as a pilot. Is it, uh, I want to hear how glamorous it really is because. Yeah, <laughs> glamour. That was the word I was looking for. My glamorous uh, yeah. life. <laughs> so it's great when I'm actually flying an airplane because that's what I you know like doing. Getting to and from that particular part of it is takes up most of the days. So yeah, um, because you're stationed, I use air quotes, in another state right Right. than the one you live in so it takes you've got you've got travel to get to your travel so i choose to be a commuter which means i get to drive an hour and a half to go to an airport that i have to fly to the place i actually work and usually a trip my trip will start in the morning early so i'll have to go the night before and get a hotel on my dime but that's all part of the i choose commute but which means i can basically live wherever i want which works for us Right. But it just makes it a little harder on me. And how long so have you three, been a pilot? Uh, first lesson was in 1980, wow, 85, but getting paid since 93. What is your favorite <clears throat> part of being a pilot? The actual flying part. I mean, it's technically, and it's just a fun thing to do. Well, it's not the easiest to do it right and to do it safely the way it's supposed to be done, but that's what I take pride in and uh, enjoy doing it the way it's supposed to be done. So we've had conversations in the past where you've told me, so the whole, what we're, for every, anybody listening, everybody listening, what we're talking today is uh, the most common or some of the questions that people ask pilot. So I've got my list of questions that I want to get your answer to. And then okay. at one point, I definitely want to do the normal, tell me your craziest kind of story thing later, okay? All right. right, So in no particular order, here's the Q&A session. All right. All right. So say you're in, you're up in the up 32,000 feet. Is that normal? Yeah. I mean, altitude, cruising altitude. Anywhere between 30 and 40. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're at 35,000. We're cruising. Can you open a cabin door from the inside once you're in the air? No, the cabin's pressurized to uh, 8,000 feet. So if you're at you know, 40,000 feet, the cabin is at 8,000 feet. And to provide that pressure differential, it's pushing air against those doors. They're designed so that you can't forcibly open them. Most of those doors, they come in, if you notice. To open them, you have to, even the main doors, when you open them, they, they come in just a little, and then they release and go out because the force of the air is pushing against the locks and the frame. So those crazy scenes in the movies and TV where somebody goes crazy nope. and decides to throw open the door that doesn't happen, it can't happen? Even on the ground, if, if you know, when we touch down, there's a, there's a valve that opens up that releases all that pressure. Not instantly, but if that fails, which it has on me once, you can't open the doors when you get to the gate because your airplane's still pressurized. It's not going to happen. Okay. I feel safer already. That's how you know. <clears throat> so that whole like while we prepare the cabin, that's why that's kind of the thing they're talking about. 
please remain seated until we, as we prepare the cabin or whatever the speeches they give when we're finally on the ground. When we're about to land or? Or like when we're, when we finally, when we're taxiing and we get to the, get to the terminal. No, they, they just say cross-check and all this other, with the doors, because they're, they're de-arming the doors for the slides, the evacuation slides, because if you uh -huh. don't and you open it, it's not a good deal. Bad things happen. Can windows break up there? Yeah. Uh, so there's a greater chance of a window breaking than the door opening. Yeah, and usually it's the flight deck windows that will break, mainly from bird strikes and stuff. But they're double paned, and I mean, even our the side windows we have up there, we can open, not in flight, oh. for the for the same reason that we discussed right. earlier. But if one of those latches didn't hold and on takeoff, it flies open, which happens. It's not an emergency. It's just windy and noisy, but it'll fly. Okay. So second question, question number two, and I think a lot of us, um, is this a myth? Is it fact or fiction? Does cabin yes. air make you... airplanes cannot fly? It's a myth. <laughs> it's a myth. It's all. It's all been a grand illusion. Can right. uh, can the actual cabin air make you sick? And not by sick like in I've got to throw up sick, but catch a cold sick. Well, no different than being in your car. It's actually safer than in your car. The air's recirculated, yes, but it's going through the HEPA filters, and most of it is outside air anyway. But coming in. But it's just like being in any other confined space. Right. So that's, it's more it's more it's the, the density. It's the guy sneezing behind right. you that's coming forward more than any, any air that's being recycled through. Because it's, it's, again, going through filters. It's, so it's yeah, no different. Yeah. All right. No. So there we go. That's a fiction. That's fiction. All right. Here's one of my favorites. Personally, what, uh -huh. ex what exactly is turbulence? Oh, it's us having fun up front. You know, shaking the... <laughs> no? No. I mean, is it air? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's different, all different types. I mean, the worst are the clear air turbulence because you can't see it. And the turbulence you get going in the clouds and stuff, that's just the airflow inside those clouds is volatile and that's what's causing the clouds. <clears throat> the clear air turbulence is mostly through jet streams and wind shears you can't see. I mean, all of a sudden it'll be 50 knots of wind and then all of a sudden you're at 150. And what happens then? Is that when it well, just. Then it, well, th those can be pretty severe, but there's usually reports and we have forecasts of where those will be. We can generally avoid that. Even our dispatchers are plan routes. So the flight may be 30 minutes longer because we're avoiding mountain waves or, or any of those turbulent areas. Uh, but what's nice is our new weather apps that we're using during the flight have current turbulence reports from other airplanes. So we can see where it's happening and what altitude, what kind of airplane it was. So we can gauge what's going on right now rather than a forecast that was made six hours ago. Kind of like back in the day when, you know, you had CB radios and truckers and they yeah. let you know that there was a cop ahead. Right. <laughs> but turbulence, you know, most people, it makes them nervous. And I get that. Even my family, they don't, they really get nervous during the turbulence. And for me, it's those are just speed bumps. You're driving down the road and you're hitting a speed bump. It's no different. There's nothing going to pull you out of that sky because of it. What actually, what's, that's a, a good segue. What is the most, when you're at that altitude, what is actually the most dangerous thing that you have, you might encounter? I'm not, not sure if I'm saying that right, but what's the storms? Best? I mean, the, the most harrowing things I've heard of is people flying through the tops of these storms because they couldn't get over them and you have to get through it or they didn't realize because the radar wasn't picking it up at that altitude, but 
the storm was growing so rapidly below them that it they ended up flying through the top of it. And they can get pretty pretty mean. I've heard of planes stalling at the top of these storms and stalling down into them, and those are not good days. Oh my God, what happens then? Well, you recover. I mean, we're trained for that, but we're more trained to avoid those situations. <laughs> that's Yikes. that's the key. Hence, back to their previous professional way of flying. But sometimes these things happen, and you just deal with it. You got to go with it. Got to go with the flow, literally. Yeah. When you stop screaming and crying. <laughs> what is it like in the, uh, up, in, uh, up in the pit, you know, when these things are going on? I mean, do you guys ever get nervous and like, you're like, oh, well, sh- no, we've <laughs> seen pretty much everything in the simulator. So, and we go back, you know, every six months to a year and redo all this. You know, they beat us up for a good four day, four hours a day for three days, nonstop emergencies. Yeah. By the time it's really going on, you're just like, okay, we'll do this again. Yeah, at least I've seen this. I think you were telling me the last time that you uh, were at training, uh, one of this, what was, you had a really intense simulator, didn't you? Well, we had all these uh, extended envelope training, is meaning you're, they're putting the airplane outside its normal operating envelope, and you're really just dealing, learning how the plane flies in that envelope, because you normally don't get to do that. Um, and mostly they're stall series or slow flights, but they put you into some fact-based scenarios, meaning these things have actually happened. Right. Um, like one going out of Orange County in California that you get to two or 3,000 feet, and then the Santa Ana winds are coming across at 100, 150 miles an hour, because you've capped, you know, you've gone over the ridge line, and then all of a sudden you've got a 100-knot tailwind within a second. And that has caused one airplane to stall because it was so dramatic. And uh, so w- w- we go through those and it's neat because they don't really tell you what's coming. So you get to, <laughs> you so, get to experience it as it really as happened it, to these crews. But without actually having to experience it. So when you tell but me- But it's when very you, realistic. I mean, these are- these Harrowing. Are, I mean, they've got Google Earth video, but most times it's, you're in the cloud, so you don't see anything. But and the, the feel is no different. It's very, yeah, it's realistic. That's crazy. It's like a lot um, of the training these days, when you're done with training initially at a new, your first time flying the real airplane is with passengers because the sims are so realistic. Wow. So you say stall to me, and because I'm not a pilot and I've never driven, flown a plane, nor will I, do I anticipate that it will ever happen in this lifetime. So I, when I hear stall, I hear like if my car stalls, it stops. <laughs> Right. right. So <laughs> break that down to me and explain to me why if a plane is stalling in, in the air, it just doesn't go. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. You're, the wing has stopped producing lift. It is stalled. So, so how do you stay up? You flap. <laughs> really hard. Really hard. <laughs> that's when those windows open and you each like stick yeah. an arm out. Well, it's altitude is a wonderful thing because then you can get push the nose down and build up your airspeed so that the the wing starts producing lift again. And there's several different reasons why a, a wing would stall. It could be ice buildup. It could just be like that one we just discussed where the tailwind hit so hard that now there's no airflow coming across the wing. M- many different reasons. But uh, the whole point is just to get it, get that airflow back over the wings. And power and altitude are the two things that all the only tools we have to use. So hopefully you've got both of those. Talk to me about birds. Uh, there's one building a nest right behind me. <laughs> Tis the season, it's spring. Tis so the season. Uh, how often are birds to blame 
for engine failures and also have crashes have they ever have has an air airplane ever crashed because of a bird well yeah i mean just the miracle on the hudson right is one stark example i mean we we have bird strikes all the time generally on the wings and (laughs) i do remember once coming out of chicago this was decades ago and we're just putting along having a good time but we get a call from company saying is everything okay we're like yeah he said maintenance had just called them because the airplane had just sent them a, a note that I guess when a bird is ingested through the engine, it has a particular exhaust gas temperature, which is what we gauge the health of it. It has a particular spike, a signature, mm-hmm. and it had that signature. So apparently we had ingested a bird, but the way the engines are technically designed is that's not an issue. It just goes right through the engine, the high bypass part. It doesn't go through the core. and uh, Apparently we had that, didn't know it. it. It's running fine. Everybody's happy. And they said, okay, well, press on. <laughs> it's one of those where ignorance is bliss. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I've had it hit windscreen many times, and it's quite the thud. A lot of guts. <laughs> Gross. But uh, but you don't have to clean it. No. <laughs> it's nice to see through the screen, though. But. Once we had to have the other guy who was flying, you know, it was my leg, but I couldn't see anymore out the windows. He had to finish the, finish the flight. How does that, um, that balance work between pilots? Tell me what a typical cockpit makeup looks like. Somebody's flying and somebody's flying, somebody's talking on the radio and you swap every leg. Okay. So one leg I'll be doing all the flying and the navigating and uh, the next leg I'll just be talking on the radio. There's only two of you? Yeah. Are there more for longer flights, like international flights? Yeah, I mean, there can be. We don't, we don't have, they're called augmented crews, where you have, you know, a rest time. I did that with previous airlines where we'd have that. And I, I usually did that job, whereas I was in the back for takeoff and landing. And then in the middle of the flight, somebody would come out and rest, and I'd go up there and sit. <laughs> That's it. That's it? All right. But yeah. Uh, but we, you know, we, you can go up to eight, nine hours now without augmented crews, so. I'm Eugene B. Sims, and my award-winning blog is now a full-fledged podcast. Get it just about anywhere that you get podcasts and even YouTube. You were telling me one time, and I hate that I can't remember it exactly what it was, but I was really fascinated. But I think it was we were talking about uh, fuel, fuels, uh, how the, these really long flights that, you know, like these 18-hour flights, it's like how how are you able to stay up that long obviously they're bigger planes so they have bigger tanks mm-hmm. i know i'm i know i'm not using any of the right wordings for yeah. this but you know i'm breaking it down for people like me to understand well i mean we, yeah, don't, it's just we a, don't need no fancy terms it's just a numbers game so we can carry about let's say thirty thousand. we can do it in pounds we'll carry thirty thousand pounds of fuel it's about 6.7 pounds per gallon so i i, I have to think in pounds because i can't right we don't do gallons. So what do you do uh, when you go fill up your car? <laughs> yeah. Push the button till it stops. How many pounds is that? Um, you know, and, and up at altitude, you're burning less, just under 5,000 pounds per hour total. So you can do the math of six to seven hours in a, for our airplane. But even the newer ones are even longer because they're more fuel efficient. Right. Whether it's the wings because of the winglets or the engines. And that's the whole, now that's, gas is cheap nobody cares about that but uh, and, and yet gas, nobody can go anywhere <laughs> right well gas is really expensive it was that was it 
anything you can do to save fuel efficiency. And that generally came to take as little fuel as you can. So they're, they're wanting you to land with the minimal fuel you need to get from point A to point B. And so that's always an, a fight between us and the company is, okay, you want this little bit amount, but here, there, there's weather, there's other contingencies of air traffic control delays and all this other stuff that, you know, we may have to hold for a half hour. We may, you know, we don't want to have to divert to get gas to go to where we want to go. So right. it's, it's always a balance, what they want, what we want, and what experience tells you you're going to need. Speaking of diverting, have you ever had to make an emergency landing in a weird place? A weird place? No. All my diverts have been just a regular... I mean, there have been some places where we've diverted where we don't have the facilities, like we've diverted into Chattanooga once, I think, and, you know, they don't have terminals, and we didn't let anybody off. We just, they just brought the air stairs up, and we just wanted gas. That's all we needed. We just had to get off, you know, one of us had to get off and go get paperwork to finish that flight, facts to us, but no, nothing weird. Right. What's the most common reason for having to do an emergency landing? Well, you're saying divert and emergency landing. Those are two separate. Uh, yeah. So we're going to let's talk emergencies because it sounds more exciting. What was the question again? I wasn't. So um, no, no, no. I mean, in, in just in general, I, I'm sure you're, I mean, have you ever had to land in a cornfield? I doubt it. But no, no. Um, <laughs> what's the, uh, if, is there a one particular reason that comes up more frequently than others for emergency landings? Is it medical? Is it what? And do you uh, do med- emergency landings for medical? Yeah, I mean, those are the most common, and we will. We have, the process is, if somebody's ill on board, we do a patch-through call to a doctor on the ground, which all the airlines use, and they're the one that actually makes the call. Because usually there's a medical person on board, and if there's not, then, I mean, they're talking with them back there, assessing the situation, and they make the call. So the liability is now on them, not the airline, not anybody else. It's just a service that all the airlines use now. So they'll, they'll tell us what we need to do, and, and they'll have everything set up when we get there, too. Ambulances and fire, whatever we need. So it's a, it's a nice situation now right? to where we don't have to make the call. I mean, if it's, you know, if the guy's critical and, and we can, the flight ends are like, we have to get on the ground now, we'll do it. Not a, not a big deal. And we'll just do it, deal with it, and move on. How long does it usually take from the point where you have to figure out that you've figured out that you need to get on the ground to actually getting on the ground? Because there has to be some kind of, obviously, orchestrating between ground yeah, control. Well, there's a lot of coordination just of where are we going to go. I mean, during the course of any flight, we always are aware of the nearest airport. We're keeping track of, okay, if something happens now, where are we going to go? And, you know, you're taking into account mountainous terrain, all this other thing that so we generally have an idea at that moment where we want to go, and we can make the rec- recommendation, but they may have something better if it's, say, a emer- medical emergency, and they need this guy to go to this place instead. It's slightly further. That's their call. They want to do it. We'll do it. Right. But we can be on the ground in 20 minutes or less, Okay. depending on the severity. Of, you know, We don't want to put the people in the plane into weird situations if we don't have to do yeah. an emergency descent. Yeah. We'll get there expeditiously but an emergency descent is a different animal oh i'm sure it is i'm sure it is what about you know we've heard it seems like over the past several years i don't know why there's been such an uptick in it probably because of social media but what about your unruly and you know or like passengers who had too much to drink or just get unruly what is that like other than a circus yeah i mean 
we're lucky because we have a locked door. So basically that's a flight attendant problem. And they're, they're very well trained to deal with it. Um, there's different levels of threats, we call it. Depending on what those levels are is how we deal with it. So once they tell us where they are in the bag, then we do what is required by that particular threat. A lot of times that is diverting and getting those per that person off with law enforcement. And that's a federal offense, isn't it? Yeah, the problem there is uh, it costs a lot of money to prosecute. And a lot of that do stuff doesn't happen, but they that person generally just gets banned from flying. Ever? That, that particular airline. Gotcha. But they it depends on the situation. Depends on the situation. They get blacklisted if they do it enough. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> typically it's usually out of Vegas, leaving Vegas because somebody's been drinking for a week and they aren't hydrated enough. And we get up to altitude, and like I said, you're at eight thousand feet, and uh, a lot of people passing out, not feeling good. So it happens pretty frequently. Most times, you just give them some orange juice, and everybody's fine. Um, it's okay, but the unruly passenger stuff. I mean, we. It's changed a lot just because now other passengers are becoming involved. They're really dealing with it <laughs> on their well, own. Well, yeah, because nobody wants to deal with that. Yeah. I mean, and especially the abuse to the, the flight attendants. I mean, yeah. that's just rude. I know what I was going to ask you. What are, all the, um, what are all the different signals? Like all the different dings? Is there, is there a code for this? Like is, if, is one bell one thing and two? What, what is this like Morse code? <laughs> What is it? Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, if we're chiming the flight attendants to, you know, for to call us or they're calling us, there's two dings or um, the seatbelt sign is one ding. If there's an emergency, there's so many dings. Uh, and there's some codes there that we can't share, but. Um, <laughs> I'm hungry. Yeah, <laughs> no. But yeah, usually two dings are a phone call, basically from one of us to the other. Yeah, well, I've, I've primarily have noticed one and two. I don't think I've really, you know, noticed any others. That's, yeah, that's good. Well, Anything I, else is, is non-standard. <laughs> but each airline is different, too, on what they do, so. So what, I'm what I just heard really is, if, it, what I just heard is if I hear anything more than one or two, then I, you know, need to pull out my Take rosary notice. beads. <laughs> Take notice. Take or notice. Or you just got somebody that's really happy with the bills. <laughs> Okay, we're almost done here. So like I said at the beginning, I want you to tell me if you've got one favorite story, make it one, but if not, if I, I want to hear your best feet in the air as opposed to feet on the street story. What's your favorite story? Or experience? Feet in the air, feet on the street. So you know how you know. say what, you know, feet on the street, your feet aren't on the street, they're in the air. <laughs> I mean, there's all tons of little things that happen that make your days. I mean, just like the other day, I may have even told you, but you know, nobody on the airplanes these days, but there was one guy as I'm commuting to work, so I'm in the back of the plane and he's a couple rows in front of me wearing a tinfoil hat. And of course you have to ask what, you know, Why? What's... he's like, well, this is my social distancing test technique. Um, I look crazy. People are going to leave me alone. They're going to keep their distance from me. That's his way to social distance to make people think he's crazy. It's like, uh, that's one way of doing it. Bet it worked too. I might try that myself. I mean, there's been in the old days where I'd be waiting at the hotel for a van pickup in my uniform and people would drive up and hand me their bags. That's happened quite a bit, actually. As a valet? As a valet. A chauffeur. Well, you're kind of a chauffeur, but not oh, that bus, kind. Bus, bus driver. Bus driver. <laughs> Anything else you want to add to this as we wind down, as we start preparing for landing? 
You like how I did that? <laughs> I mean, my favorite questions are, you know, most people, being a pilot, it doesn't come up very often. I had one soccer parent. Uh, we'd been soccer parenting together for years and years and years. And at the very last soccer game, somebody was asking me questions about, you know, flying. And he looks at me and goes, you're a pilot? I've known you for three years. And I had no idea. It's like, that's the way I like it. Because generally when you tell somebody that, the first thing is, oh, Mike flies for Delta. Do you know him? <laughs> uh, does he live in Atlanta? Yeah. Which one of the 20,000 pilots they have is it? No, I don't know, Mike. And especially with such a, you know, common name. Well, it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, it's just my company alone has 10,000 pilots. And I right. know, you know, 15 of them. Yeah, you know but, your group. Uh, you know, you know your, your posse. Right. <laughs> uh, so those are my favorite questions. But it's always, that's the thing. As soon as they find out, then it's, I get to hear all their flying stories, how bad it is. But it's really like un, it's really not unlike any other profession. It's just the stories and situations are different. You know, oh, right. you do this, well, blah, blah, blah. And the thing is, there's no other job really that where everybody you're transporting is stressed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know of any other industry that puts you through what they do to get you as a customer. Just buying the tickets, going through security, going, you know, getting on an airplane. They're scared. All these things makes people one act weird and crazy there's a great way to end this and i have to imagine since you've been flying for so long um especially having to have gone through 9 11 that you have to miss the days where everybody loved to fly when it wasn't a pain in the ass to fly yeah i mean when you could just walk to the gate with your whole family or whatever to see see them off <laughs> commuting sitting on the flight attendant's lap because they were out of seats, you know, the, right. the silly things you did back in the days. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly much safer today than it was. And we appreciate think about, I think there's been zero fatalities, except one on our, the lady on our plane that got sucked out the window because of the engine failure. But that was just a fluke. But you just, yeah. it's really amazing. You're definitely in more danger on the roads than you are on an airplane. That's for sure. Absolutely. Most, everybody asks, well, what's, what's the most dangerous part of your job? And I said, getting in the hotel van to and from the hotel. That's it. Yeah. Because you don't, I mean, we don't hear about obviously all the car accidents and you only hear about airline accidents because of why they happen so rarely. Nope. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty magnificent. It's pretty spectacular. So, well, thank you, Peyton, for spending time with us. Well, anytime. If you get uh, a list of more silly questions, I'll be happy to fill in the blanks. Good. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that, my friends, is a wrap on this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. You can get all of the episodes at conversationsontherocks.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, and that's at Kristen Dokas, K-R-I-S-T-E-N-D-A-U-K-A-S. Until next week, keep it real, and let's hear what your story is.